0: Hello and welcome back to Watch Jerusalem. I'm your host, Brent Naktagal. I'm coming to you today from Jerusalem, Israel. Thank you very much for joining us today. There's a couple of things I want to get to on today's program. At the end of the show, I'm going to just recap the top biblical archaeological finds of the past year, 2018. Mr. Christopher Eames has put together an article for us that's up on Watch Jerusalem right now, detailing a couple of those. And I'd like to go through some of those with you, just so you realize what an important year it was for biblical archaeology. Before I get to that, though, I do want to talk about the political scene in two separate arenas. I'm going to talk a little bit about Syria first, and then after that I'm going to talk about the Red Sea region. Both of these areas right now are getting a whole lot of attention, and both of them are regions that have a lot of pr- prophetic implications as well. Bible prophecy indicates that these two areas, Syria and the Red Sea, are going to be hotspots in this end time, and that's what we see right now through these through the wars that are taking place and the maneuverings before war takes place. In at least referring to the Red Sea region, first of all, though, I do want to talk about Syria and the United States withdrawal. We're focused on. On this, the past couple of weeks, obviously, President Trump came out and said that the U.S. forces are going to leave. And now we're seeing the results of that. At least we're getting a glimpse into what would happen if the United States forces leave. They're still there. They haven't left yet. It's going to take probably another month before uh, the arrangements are made to see how they're going to leave and extricate themselves from this situation. Because although they only had 2,000 men, or well, they have 2,000 men in Syria, they were performing uh, functions that were um, they had far bigger of impact uh, than just those 2,000 men an outsized uh, impact for the, the the amount of soldiers that were there. And I think the uh, Wall Street Journal just does well at just indicating the two areas that the U.S. forces are currently involved in Syria. And I'm going to quote from an article of the Wall Street Journal. It's entitled, A small U.S. base gets in Iran's way, but maybe not for long. And this is what it says. Uh, This was written December 27th, so this is just a few days ago. It says, When U.S. forces leave Syria, the plan is for troops from neighboring Turkey to take their place. One exception, a small, remote U.S. base in southern Syria that has made it more difficult for Iran to project power across the Middle East. And so it just details there that there's two locations of these U.S. forces right now. You have them uh, in the north and west, or northwest of the country, fighting with the Kurds, uh, supporting Kurdish forces. And the Kurds are obviously they're this main third or fourth party in the Syrian civil war that are fighting uh, basically to ensure that they could have their dependent state an independent state of Rojava I think I believe it's called similar to Iraqi Kurdistan is what they're after but now that is kind of put in jeopardy with the US forces leaving and especially the fact that president trump has turned to turkey to be the one to replace us forces in the north because Turkey is the historic enemy of the Kurds. Turkey does not, is not interested in a Kurdish state uh, along its border just because there's, there's many millions of Kurds in eastern Turkey on the other side of the border that um, might decide that they want their own state or it could become a safe haven, this Kurdish area in Syria, for, uh, as Turkey sees it, Kurdish terrorists. And so they don't want that. And even now, we are seeing the results of the United States saying that they're going to leave. Turkey has rolled in its tanks to the region. And over the last couple of days, it's it's become clear who the Kurds are going to reach out to instead of the United States to, for help against um, uh, Turkish forces. And that's none other than the Syrian regime, Syrian regime in Russia. And they have asked, the Kurds have asked, um, the Syrian regime to enter into this town that basically separates Turkish forces from Kurdish forces they have withdrawn from this town, Manjib, I believe it's called, and they have invited the Kurdish forces have said we're going to give up this town and allow the Syrians to get in there to basically put the Syrians in between them and the and Turkey and so this is this is serious we're talking about. Uh, serious nations involving in themselves in a serious war here. Um, it looked like that the civil war was dying down, but if you have Turkey that's going to start fighting against the Kurds in a in a in a big way, then this civil war isn't going to die down because the Kurds will keep on fighting, and now it seems. Um, we've got the as- Assad's regime's going, it's going to step in between them. But we'll see if that actually happens or not, uh, whether Turkey does push very hard. They're probably going to be on their best behavior for at least a little while, uh, it's because that was what um, Erdogan promised Trump as his friend, that he would finish off the Islamic State, and that uh, Turkey would not go after the Kurds, at least at the beginning now you've got the decision that the U.S. is trying to make of what to do with all the weapons that they've given to the Kurds. Because, again, the Kurds were the ground forces for the United States' fight against Islamic State. And so they gave them all these all this, all this weaponry. Now what do you do with it? Now this weaponry, it looks like, is going to be used, if the Turks do attack, to be used on the Turks. And so you've got one NATO force... Turkey, that is, that potentially could be fighting against the Kurds, who is using NATO's military armaments to to repel them. This is an article from from Breitbart today, and it's entitled, U.S. commanders want Kurdish fighters in Syria to keep their American weapons. That's what the U.S. commanders want. These people have been fighting alongside the Kurds, these valiant fighters, um, for a couple of years now, and they have armed them, and no doubt they have relationships with them, and they don't want to see them overrun by the Turks. And so they are planning, it seems, to give the weapons over, or allow them to keep the weapons. Of course, it'd be very difficult to get all those weapons back. But these militias, Kurdish militias, they have anti-tank missiles, armored vehicles, mortars, and obviously um, they could be used in a big way against the the Turkish army if they come in there. And so we'll see what happens there. Bible prophecy doesn't necessarily tell us um, whether the Kurds are going to be successful in their fight for statehood or independence there in in Syria. What the Bible says revolving Syria is that there is going to be a a great change of power uh, in that nation. Turkey actually is going to be allied with the victorious Um, nation in terms of who's going to control Syria the Bible talks about a a united Europe that even now is growing in power and strength and and wanting to unite its military together the Bible speaks of that united Europe led by Germany actually dominating Syria and Syria being in alliance with it and another nation that's in that alliance is Turkey And so it is just so interesting here that people over the past couple of months, before Mr. Trump came out and made this decision, were like, well, Syria looks like the civil war's all done. Uh, Bashar al-Assad's still in power. Iran's pretty powerful there. But the U.S. is still there. So maybe that'll uh, keep a dampener on on Iran's gains. Russia's there as well. But maybe there'll be some type of um, uh, solution here politically coming out and then the united states leaves and you see all everyone just going to fight over that territory Um, that the United States controlled again it wasn't a huge territory but when the US is there with it's uh, just a nominal amount of troops not many at all it's 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 a huge element because if you uh, attack forces that the the US is supporting that could be seen as a direct attack on the United States and you really just don't want to do that the US still has is the most powerful um, military in the world although they don't have pride in that power like they used to, and they're not—they're not as willing to use it as they used to be. Um, that's still a dangerous—a uh, dangerous position to put yourself in. And so, with them leading, you have nations squabbling and getting to the point of of more war to control those territories. But back to this base in 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 southern Syria. Uh, southwestern, southeastern Syria. Again, this is at the Al-Tanth base. I guess there's a couple hundred troops there. They've been advising local Syrian fighters on how to take the war to against against the Islamic State. And these forces, the, the Wall Street Journal brings out, are going to likely be the last to leave Syria but when they do it, writes, the Trump administration says that Ankara won't take over the base, which is near Syria's southern border with Iraq and Jordan and far from the Turkish border to the north. So nobody knows. Nobody knows right now who's going to take over this base. And I would say this base, uh, as far as something that's uh, strategically valuable, it it outweighs the, the troops in, in the north, of course, Yes, the fact that the United States was there supporting the Kurds was very valuable for the fight against Islamic State. But in terms of greater value outside the fight against Islamic State, this base was huge because it stopped Iran, as we've talked about, from holding this land corridor, this roadway across Iraq and into Syria. There was a roadblock there, and that roadblock was U.S. forces. They'd set up a 55-kilometer. Um, uh, deconfliction zone where no one could fight and there's 50,000 uh, refugees there right now. Nobody knows what's going to happen to them. But Turkey, the United States has said, is not going to take over this base. So who's going to take it over? It seems like President Trump would want some want to give it over to somebody to ensure that Iran doesn't grow in power. And the Bible indicates, again, that Syria is going to turn away uh, from Iran's hold, and maybe that is reluctantly, maybe that is the removal of Assad, maybe it isn't. Maybe he sees that, um, that it's going to be a dead-end road allowing Iran to dominate him. Um, we don't know exactly how that's going to play out, but the Bible does indicate that there is going to be this uh, border region of eastern Syria that will be the dividing line between Iranian influence and European influence. That's where that's where the dividing line is going to be and this base, L tenth base, is right there. I wouldn't be surprised if Europe a European force, maybe France, gets that objective, gets that gets that um well, has the ability to say to the US, we'll take it over happily. Again, Bible prophecy does talk about how the clash in the Middle East that's going to set off World War III will actually be uh, between a, an Iranian empire, Iranian kingdom at least, a powerful force that pushes at its enemies, and it pushes against a united Europe. And that push is probably going to involve many factors, but Europe is going to stand up against Iranian power. And again, this dividing line of Iranian influence Um, is going to be Eastern Syria, so why wouldn't Europe start to get involved there? And that's what we should be watching for in, in, in Syria, European involvement in Eastern Syria specifically. If you want to know more about that forecast, our forecast based on Bible prophecy, you can request or read the article uh, from our editor-in-chief entitled How the Syrian Crisis Will End, written back in 2012. And yet it talks about Europe getting involved. It talks about Iranians' hold being weakened. And here we have the United States leaving, which is allowing that prophecy to take place. If the U.S. stayed there, it's very difficult to see how that would take place. So this is one area that we should be watching in the Middle East to see Bible prophecies uh, coming to, uh, to fruition, coming to pass. The other area I want to focus on in the next 15 minutes is what's taking place in the Southern Red Sea region. There was a truce. That was just worked out, I guess it was last week at the at the or maybe a week and a half ago now. this was a truce regarding the civil war taking place in Yemen. You've probably heard about this, but it is it is it can be confusing. It's been going on for a couple of years this civil war, and you have a saudi backed um uh, the the Saudi backed government that was ousted by the Iranian backed Houthi movement this militia uh, an off that is, is an offshoot of Shiite Islam that uh, occupies most of the north northern region of the country they booted out the the Saudi backed government I believe in 2015 from the capital Sana and since then there's been a bloody civil war between between them both Iran funding and equipping the Houthis with weapons. They've been caught red-handed time and time and time and time and time again with Iranian missiles, with Iranian small arms, Iranian shipments. Five or six of them have been picked up um, en route to arm the Houthis, and so they are complicit in this, which is what Iran does throughout the Middle East. It mobilizes Shiite movements for its own political gain. And... Um, obviously the Saudis have been fighting with airstrikes and even ground forces uh, to push back against that. Now, while this fight does take place on land, the real strategic value to Yemen isn't the land itself. It's the fact that the land touches up against uh, the the eastern part of the southern Red Sea. This is a really critical waterway for world trade. As you know, 10% of all uh, seaborne trade comes through this, this southern gateway of the Red Sea, which Yemen pushes up against. And Iran has long said that it wants to dominate um, that gateway, it wants to be able to maintain the trade in and out of that gateway, just just as it wants to maintain the power to stop or start trade that comes out of the Persian Gulf, of which uh, a third of world seaborne oil comes out from. So Iran's goal, its strategy here, it knows that it can't. It's not going to conquer the Middle East uh, as far as flooding it with with ground attack uh, ground forces. It needs to just have control over a few critical locations in the Middle East. And what it's going to go for, the Bible says, the Bible says it's going to go for control in Egypt, and it's going to go for control in this Southern Red Sea passageway. It's also going to go for control, obviously, in the Persian Gulf as well. Iran's um, southeast, southwestern border obviously snugs right up to the to the Strait of Hormuz uh, on the Persian Gulf. And these are really narrow waterways, 18, 19 miles. You don't even have to put a boat there. It's not necessary to put a boat there. You just have to put men, men with a couple of rocket launchers on either side of this, of either side of this strategic waterway, and just disrupt shipping enough that it's it's not uh, uh, profitable for companies to ship through there because of the risk and then they go elsewhere prices go up and you have a great strain on the world economy so there's a, there's a lot that iran can do that is an all-out war that can jeopardize world trade by controlling these critical choke points and so, getting back to what we were talking about before, two weeks ago, there's a truce announced between the uh, Houthis, who are Iranian backed in Yemen, and the Saudi backed government as well of Yemen. And this truce revolved around the port of Hadidah, one of the main ports that uh, where all or most of the aid um, comes into this port of Hadida, and get, can get dispersed by international agencies to ensure that the people don't starve. Yemen being one of the poorest countries in the world, and, and the huge, it's a huge starvation risk right now. And so the UN has been trying to work out some type of ceasefire, some type of truce, so they can get uh, supplies in to stop the population from from dying off. Which is which is horrific, of course, but what's going to happen when you have a ceasefire? Iran seems to be extremely capable at moving, at working through these type of uh, instances for its own advantage. And what the ceasefire called for was uh, both the Houthis and the Saudi-backed um, uh, forces to give over this port city control of Hadida to to the UN, to other observers. And they said they were going to do it, and they haven't done it. This is what AP um, reported today. It's really interesting. AP, I, it came out with this story earlier on in the day, and it I think it was titled, Yemen's Rebels Say They've Left Hadidah Port, or basically saying that the Houthis are out of there. And so I push back against that with a with a um, an AP reporter who inside the article they state basically that the Houthis haven't done this, but the title of the article says that the ceasefire is working, and it was just kind of shocking. And now there is a change uh, to that that title, and uh, now it is Yemen's rebels say they left Hadaida port, claim disputed, because it is disputed. They the Yem, the Houthis the Iranian backed people haven't left. That port. This is the main port that, that where arms come in from Iran to the Houthis. This is how they stay armed. So they're not going to give over control of this port. Obviously not. This is what this article says um, from today. It says, Yemen Shiite rebels on Saturday said they handed over the control of the main port in the Red Sea city of Hadaida to the Coast Guard and local administrators. But the government denied that, calling it a ploy by the Iranian-aligned rebels to maintain control of the strategic facility. The handover was supposed to be the first in a series of confidence-building measures, agreed to in Sweden, that could pave the way for a political settlement of Yemen's four-year-old war, pitting the rebels, known as the Houthis, against the internationally recognised government backed since 2015 by a Saudi-led coalition. But the pro-government Sabah news agency quoted... What it called, an official source is saying that the Houthis' assertion about giving up the port was an attempt to sidestep the Sweden arrangement. And then it says this, um, military and local Hidaita officials loyal to the government said that the Houthis had taken advantage of their control of the city to place loyalist administrators and and fighters in both the port management and the coast guard. And so in the lead up to this arrangement, basically you had Houthi fighters, again, the Houthis backed by Iran, fighting for Iran's cause to control uh, this this southern gateway of the Red Sea. You had them starting to uh, participate in different roles. They were part of the local administration now. They were part of the Coast Guard now. They weren't affiliated, apparently, with the fighting force of the Houthis. And so they go back into civilian clothes, the Houthi fighters. And so, yeah, the Houthis claim, we're, hey, we're, all of our fighters are out. And all they've done is change their uniforms. This is what um, the Hedayda governor said. It's a stage play in which the Houthis handed over the port to their fighters after they put on Coast Guard uniforms, end quote. And so uh, it's just interesting. Uh, one of our writers, Warren Runch, he wrote an article, I think a week and a half ago, it's entitled Misguided Yemen Ceasefire, A Victory for Iran. And the quip reads this, Yemenis cling to any hope of ending their civil war, but Iran has a long history of working around ceasefires. Indeed they do. Indeed they do, excuse me. And it didn't take long to see how they're doing that. Iran isn't going to give up on on its control of this Red Sea passageway. In fact, there's nations right now that are aware of Iran's desire uh, to control this area, and they're doing what they can. I've got a huge list of stories here going back two months that talks about the different Arab forces that are having war games there. I believe there's actually war games going on right now. Yeah, this is from a Saudi paper. It's entitled Red Wave 1 Naval Drills Kick Off in Red Sea. It says the Red Wave One naval drills got underway Sunday for countries overlooking the Red Sea, with the participation of Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Sudan, Djibouti, Yemen, and observers from Somalia. And it says this is going to—they're going to work together until Thursday. Um, it aims to protect regional waters, bolster military cooperation, and exchange expertise among participants. Given the significance of the Red Sea as a vital global economic waterway. And so that's involving all of those nations right now. Most of those nations have um, access to this area, and so they want to They want to make it safe. They want to ensure freedom of navigation through here. Why? Why do they want to do that? Well, Iran has claimed that it's the Sultan of the Red Sea. That's what it said when it conquered over Yemen. Conquered Yemen. Conquered Sana, the capital of Yemen, a couple of years ago. We are now the Sultans of the Red Sea. We're in charge of the Red Sea. And even... Um, uh, Suleimani, Kasam Suleimani, <clears throat> the head of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. He's obviously the one. He's the one that um, organizes all of Iran's foreign missions. <clears throat> he reports directly to the Ayatollah. He came out a couple of months ago and talked directly against the United States in the Red Sea. This is what he said um, a few months ago. He said, "This is a, an article from AFP." <clears throat> Iran's major general Kasam Soleimani. So remember, this, th- remember, this is the most powerful man in terms of Iran's foreign military objectives. He's the one that's cited in in Syria. He's the one that's in Iraq, working out with the Iraqi government how Iran's power base can be ensured. He's the one sending IRGC trainers to Yemen to train the Houthis. He said this. Iran's major. This is sorry, AFP. Iran's major general Kasam Soleimani said on Thursday that the Red Sea was no longer safe for U.S. vessels, threatening President Donald Trump with the launching a proxy war. And uh, he said, quote, You are aware of our power in the region and capability for launching asymmetrical warfare. Asymmetrical warfare, he said. You may begin the war, but it's us who will end it, he said. And then later on, he talked about how the Red Sea region isn't going to be safe for you anymore. Isn't going to be safe for the United States. How? How would it not be safe for the United States? Well, obviously, through um, the weapons that the Houthis now hold. And so you've got these other nations led by Saudi Arabia that wants to protect its interest, obviously. Uh, It wants to ensure that it can still have its uh, huge supertankers flow through this region uh, and take the oil towards Europe. I think there's almost there's like 4.8 million barrels of oil per day that flow through the Babel-Mandab, which is this gate of tears, as it is um, translated uh, in the southern region, region of the Red Sea. And so they want to ensure that trade's a, uh, available to take place. You've got $800 billion a year worth of trade between China and Europe that flows through here as well. That's a lot. And it can be jeopardized by Iran's power over over the Red this Red Sea region Um, in terms of its forces the houthi forces but that's not going to be enough for iran what's interesting about all these games and i've got another few articles here i'm not going to talk talk about but basically for the past three months you've had three different war games that have been set up naval war games that have been set up by the saudis the saudis set up two of them and then you had uh, france and egypt that came together as well for another one of them why are they all there Why are they all preparing their forces to work together inside the Red Sea? Because they know that that's Iran's objective. There was this other article that came out this week from Geopolitical Futures and talks about the really destabilized situation in Sudan right now. Sudan, obviously, um, if you look at a map, Between Egypt and Eritrea and Ethiopia, Um, this is a nation that does hold a significant portion of coastline of the western part of the Red Sea. Iran, years ago, was heavily interested in Sudan. Um, When the the current uh, president came to power, who is a war criminal, um, came to power in the late 80s, he signed a defense agreement with Iran, which gave the Iranians a foothold. Um, aside Saudi Arabia, and this was a big worry for the Israelis. Uh, this, they set up weapons manufacturing facilities in Sudan, Iran did. Israeli jets actually had to go down there to Sudan and blow those uh, weapons facilities up, but it was a worry uh, because Iran could use its wealth at that time uh, to support that dictator, in in sudan now as iran's funds have d- dried up a little bit um you have seen this that sudan basically flop over to the saudi side because the saudis have a lot of money basically bailed him out of a lot of situation uh, difficult situations economically and so now he's on the saudi side but it just shows how quickly that this um that sudan can fall or can go back between vacillate between the saudi alliance or the iranian alliance this is from Geopolitical Futures, headed up by George Friedman, a known longtime strategist. Uh, he uh, He didn't write this. One of his writers, Xander Snyder, wrote this December 28th, so this past week. Last week, protests broke out in Sudan after the government tripled the price of bread. The protests have continued into this week, with thousands participating in the cities across the country. In Khartoum, which is the capital... Protesters marched on the presidential palace calling for President Omar al-Bashir's resignation and a coalition of union groups is insisting that a transitional government takes his place. Nearly 40 people have been killed by security forces and on Monday doctors began a strike in solidarity with the protesters. Bashir, who has been in power since 1989, has promised to answer protesters' demands with sweeping reforms but he made it clear that he intends to stay in his post. And so you probably don't read much about this on your news. Sudan's a long way away. It's Africa. Um, not much gets out of Africa. Not much news. Well, here you have a protest that's breaking out in Sudan. 40 people have been killed in the past week, and they're threatening to overthrow their, their dictatorial leader. Now, I'm not saying that the protest is a pro-Iran at all. I'm saying that in these situations, Iran is able to benefit It's able to get in there in some fashion and uh, work to destabilize the situation further to get their power, whoever they want in power. In power, we saw that in Egypt during the Arab Spring. Uh, That's what that's what happened in Egypt when Mohammed Morsi came into power. He was obviously um, of the Muslim Brotherhood, a different uh, different stripe as far as Islam goes. The Muslim Brotherhood, following the Sunni uh, faith, and yet. One of his first act was, acts in power was to renew ties with Iran, one of the sworn enemies of Egypt and Mubarak. And so Iran can work in these situations. And so, again, this is another area where you need to watch. And we will do our best to keep you very informed of what's happening around the Southern Red Sea area. Just because the Bible talks about this being an extremely Um, important focus of the king of the south this radical islamist camp that is headed by iran projects its power into the southern and northern red sea regions this is an area we're going to be reporting on a lot at watch jerusalem to ensure that you're kept up to date with what iran's doing the nations in the region are aware of iran's goals not many, one, not many else, not many other nations around the world seem to care, it seems. Yet why are all these war games taking place? Well, they're protecting themselves, trying to at least, from Iran's hold. And yet the Bible indicates, because of these prophecies in Daniel chapter 11, verse 40 to 44, it talks about Iran being in control of Egypt, being controlled of Ethiopia even, and Eritrea, doesn't necessarily say Sudan there, but that's probably likely as well, and even parts of Libya. And so Iran is going to control this whole southern portion of the Mediterranean um, from Egypt on over to probably most of Libya and down the Red Sea. And that's going to give them huge power to push at Europe by putting an economic chokehold on the continent from trade that comes from China and elsewhere. And so this is a place that needs your vigilance. It definitely does. If you want to read more about this, uh, our editor-in-chief has written a lot about it. Um, You can request his booklet, King of the South. I could just tell you to go read an article, but I really want you to go and read this booklet because it involves, it talks about all of Iran's strategies. It talks about Iran's strategies in Syria. It talks about their strategy in Iraq talks about their strategy in the Southern Red Sea, Red Sea and Southern Mediterranean region. And just looking at um, a, a map and then watching your news, if you have a decent news service, you'll see that these are all the places that there are fights right now. These are all the places that there are battles or preparation for battles. These regions that are going to either fall in or out of Iranian power. It's very important to watch this. We're going to take a short break now, and when I come back, I'm just going to whet your appetite on looking at the most recent finds in biblical archaeology, those from 2018. We'll be right back. This is Watch Jerusalem, where history and prophecy come alive. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Watch Jerusalem. I'm just going to run through these discoveries uh, from Christopher Eames. He's put together a number of discoveries from 2018 that you might have missed if you are new with us. If you're not new with us, then you probably are aware of these. Nevertheless, it's good to go back through them just to see what a year it has been in biblical archaeology in 2018. We thank you very much, Chris, if you're listening to this, for writing the article Uh, He is down in New Zealand, his native homeland right now, working out uh, some visa things Um, before he gets back up to the UK. He, of course, is an area supervisor in Dr. Elot Mazar's excavations here in the Ophel in Jerusalem, the latest phase uh, taking place earlier this year. And he has written this article from New Zealand. We do appreciate that very much. Uh, right now, I think I just checked the stats a couple minutes ago, and we've had about uh, 1,100, 200 people that have read the article so far. So please, if you're not one of those people, go and check it out, and I'll leave a link for the program or for the, the article in the show notes of this program. The first... Uh, Archaeological discovery, no doubt, Christopher talks about is the Isaiah Buller. He writes that this is the single greatest item of 2018, surely the greatest discoveries in a long time. It certainly is. We've spoken at length about the Isaiah Buller. Um, It is the number one discovery on our list. I've been through a number of of other top 10 lists or top 5 lists relating to archaeology. Written here in Israel and elsewhere in the world, and the first few I read, it didn't even appear. Uh, then there was one where it did appear, so I was very happy to see that. Of course, this was a discovery that was found or unearthed back in two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten. I was actually excavating with a with a friend of mine from Herbert W. Armstrong College in this little tiny area of about a meter by a meter. Uh, of soil right on bedrock against a solomonic city wall from Jerusalem's time and we were re- and we were really trying to make sure we didn't miss any of the layers uh, as we were excavating because these layers at the very bottom and foundation of this wall are most important to date the wall itself and so we we spent like i think it was probably 6 weeks excavating these layers which were basically ended up being a dump Things that were thrown over the wall uh, and it was in one of these layers where this Isaiah Bulla was found. Unfortunately, we did not see it with our eyeballs. I don't know whether it was me or uh, Harley Breath, the other, the other man, the other student that was excavating there at the time. Whether it was me or him or that missed it, uh, but only it was only big enough for area for one of us to excavate at a time. So one of us was normally doing some of the documentation while the other excavated. So I'm going to say it was him that missed it uh, and not me. Nevertheless, it did come out in wet sifting. That's where the soil goes away and is washed and sprayed and then uh, items can be discerned more clearly. And then finally, it was released earlier this year in 2018 after a thorough investigation about what it actually said. So that's the first item on this list. The second is um, talking about the analysis of uh, Jordan's Tell El Hamam. This has been excavated for about a decade. I've got a book here on my, my shelf about it, um, talking about how this is likely the city of Sodom. Of course, there's huge debate uh, just around the archaeological world and biblical history world biblical geographical world, as to where Sodom is. Some say it's under the Dead Sea. Some say it's south of the Dead Sea. Uh, this side is located actually north of the Dead Sea in this plain, uh, well-watered plain. <clears throat> I think it, it very much does add up, probably better than any other location for Sodom, uh, biblical Sodom. It's the largest tell in this whole area, largest city, and there is another, uh, many other tells right next to it, one notable one that's secondary in size, which is likely Gomorrah, And then there are a bunch of other cities, the plain, which were all destroyed at this time um, by fire from heaven. And what this discovery comes out and and talks about, the one that was made this year, that it talks about how there was this instantaneous destruction of this town from about 1700 BCE. The dating might be slightly off from when... uh, when the, the events that we can tell from the Bible, the chronology looks like it, ha- it happened. Um, maybe that's faulty dating because the chronologies, I'm not sure. Nevertheless, you do have the Sodom sort of meant to be destroyed in really close to this proximity time-wise, and you do have a ma- amazing destruction from heaven, where this whole place was destroyed in an instant, Destroyed in an instant, and it was extremely hot, the destruction. This wasn't a fire. Clay pottery fragments actually melted into glass, and they were formed, these crystal glass form, crystals were formed in one second. And so these were surfaces, perhaps, that were about as hot as the sun that destroyed this city instantaneously. And so I do encourage you to go and read up about that. There will be a more thorough article about that as well um, later on. Just a few of the other uh, discoveries that are on this list. Uh, the discovery of Tel Eton, um, that relates, to, it could be one of the third or fourth Davidic era cities to ever be be found. Of course, the era of David is the hottest topic in biblical archaeology for the past decade, well, actually more than that, probably about 30 years now, going at least back to the early 90s. And more and more proof of David and Solomon is coming up and so teleton is another discovery uh relating to that the other one the another um thing on or another item on Chris's list here is the Shiloh pomegranate. You might remember actually we did an interview about six months ago with Dr Scott stripling on this program. He led a massive team of excavators um, uh, excavating Shiloh, the home of the tabernacle for three hundred plus years during Joshua's time and thereafter that's where the tabernacle was set up and he even i think he I don't know if he broke it on our program, but it was very close to the, the time period uh, that the story broke, that they had found this ceramic pomegranate. There was, we posted an article about our interview with Mr. Stripling mentioning this pomegranate on Facebook. And there was a couple of people that responded to it that excavated it. Shiloh went like, wait, what? We're allowed to talk about it now? So it was kind of like he broke that on our on our program, or at least close to it. And of course, pomegranates—they were these are in, uh, very important motifs in the service of the tabernacle and temple. And so, to find a, semi- uh, a ceramic pomegranate, a few centimeters in length, bored with a board through at one end, to be hung from a string, it likely um, would be on the high priest. That because he had bells, as Chris brings out, and also these pomegranates that were st- strung on his outfit. And so to find that in Shiloh, right where the tabernacle is said to have been in the Bible, is great proof. And really the, the, the first proof that we did have that there was a ritual, uh, religious function there in, on that site. So that is another discovery from this year. Important helping prove that Shiloh was the ancient location of the tabernacle. Of course, the tabernacle won't be found just because it was made not of uh, ceramics. It was made of wood and and skins, and so it would be very difficult to find that. But you can find the the tools that were used. You can find the massive pits of ash and animal bones that they do find there. And this is important to get to. It's very important, this discovery, because previous excavators at this site who are renowned for their anti-Bible bias, they declared it to not be the site of the tabernacle, or at least there's no proof of it. And yet proof has been found. The couple other finds, just to round this out, is a city city gate that was found uh, belonging to Absalom's mother. Um, You can read up about that as well. If you're familiar with the program, Uh, we did a program about that also. And there's a couple more that are worth looking into. Again, this article by Chris is entitled, Top Discoveries in Biblical Archaeology 2018. That's about all we're going to cover today on the program. Thanks again for listening. Please don't forget about the first half of today's show if you made it all the way through. Please request Editor-in-Chief's book of Watch Jerusalem, King of the South. This is a book that is going to guide you. Uh, It's going to show you what's important and what's not important in Middle Eastern news. Of course, all these events, the reason we cover them is because they are biblically and prophetically significant. And this is not just an intellectual study. Prophecy is there to help both prove God's existence and also show us, show us where we are to the epic events in this end time, to the coming of the Messiah and the changing of this world for good. And so, yes, we're talking about Iranian proxies here and there, and it can be confusing but step back for a minute and see the area that Iranian, Iran controls and see the areas that it's pushing at Europe because that's exactly what the Bible says is going to lead into those prophetic events that culminate in the coming of the Messiah. If you'd like to send me some feedback on the program today or any feedback for Watch Jerusalem at all, you can do so by writing your emails to letters at watchjerusalem.co.il. Thanks again for listening.